Kia ora. Welcome to NZSA Live, the podcast where we share audio recorded at a variety of New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipunu Kaituhi Tuhi Aotearoa, 10 New Zealand Inc. events. Today's podcast was recorded at the Janet Frame Memorial Lecture, given by the NZSA President of Honour 2021-2022, Tessa Duda. It was recorded in May 2022. The prestigious position of NZSA President of Honour is bestowed on a senior writer and long-serving member in recognition of their contribution to writing and writers and the literary arts sector in Aotearoa. You can see a list of past position holders and read former lectures on our website, authors.org.nz. Tessa Duda has been a champion of children's and young adult writing in Aotearoa for 40 years through many literary organisations including being a past president of NZSA. She has been widely recognised for her writing and advocacy. Tessa is a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. She has won a Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement, the Catherine Mansfield Menton Fellowship, the Storylines Margaret Mayhew Medal, and numerous other awards for her books and writing. We're sure you'll enjoy today's lecture. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you all society members and Storylines colleagues and book-loving friends and my own whanau. Thank you all for coming to share this occasion. Especially to the society for bringing us together in this, the finest of Auckland's heritage buildings. Built, as I'm sure you know, in 1856 to convince southerners that Auckland must be retained as the capital of New Zealand. Well, in 1865, as we know, Wellington prevailed but this gracious Italianate mansion remains. Having spent the last three years teleporting myself daily back to early Auckland for my next novel, to be published next year in June, it feels like something of an emotional, even a spiritual home to be here. As you've heard, the Society's President, Mandy, can't be with us today, but I want to personally acknowledge her outstanding contribution to the New Zealand literary landscape as she stands down from three years as the president. But equally, for the several novels that have so enriched New Zealand writing for young adults, and of which more later. My privilege and brief tonight is to present a state of the nation overview of literature and writing in New Zealand in honor of Janet Frame, who, along with Catherine Mansfield and Margaret Mahi, comprise the troika of New Zealand's most internationally acclaimed, and in my view, greatest writers. Well, I've been reading Mansfield since school days, and in 2005 I published a, a substantial book on Margaret Mahi. But I, for one, needed reminding of the extraordinary range of Janet Frame's writing, so much more than a public perception limited to perhaps that troubled early life that gave rise to Owls Do Cry, and the three-volume autobiography, which later became Jan Campion's film Angel at My Table. And some of you may know of the several unsuccessful attempts by fellow writers to win her the Nobel Prize for Literature. Between 1851 and 1884, she published some 18 novels, short story and poetry collections, basically a new book every two or three years, and that takes some doing. Not forgetting, of course, the 40 short stories and poems for magazines like The New Yorker and Harper's Bazaar, and one children's book. So, standing in the shadow of these giants, 
rejoicing in the title of President of Honour and charged with saying something meaningful about the state of my country's literature, the words imposter syndrome are springing to mind. You'll know that phrase coined in 1878 by two American psychologists, who else? To cover feelings of unworthiness, anxiety, fear of being found out, exposed as a fraud. Dr. Google advises that it's widespread. Maybe 70% of adults at least once during a lifetime. But remedies are at hand. Avoid comparing yourself to others. Talk to trusted friends, seek help. Crucially, own your accomplishments. So, in society of author's terms, this means reminding myself that with three books under my belt, I joined the organization known then as Penn around 1985, believing that a newish career writer should support the only national literary organization and, of course, meet other writers. I also joined the Children's Literature Association, founded by the late Tom Fitzgibbon and Betty Gilderdale. My first meetings of Penn's Auckland branch were not encouraging. At 45, I was younger than most of the room. I was female, and worse, I was only a children's writer. The night's business was conducted entirely between three or four of the older men, famous names whose book I'd read. However, there was always the jovial treasure, that wonderful lawyer and teacher, Bernard Brown, and enough women and wine to make the socialising enjoyable. Some five years of fairly passive membership later, but with my status perhaps slightly improved by the success of my young adult novel, Alex, I was astonished when John Craner asked if he could put my name forward as North Island Vice President for the Penn National Council. I'm hardly qualified, I told him. You'll learn, he said. At any rate, it's largely honorary. You just go to Wellington once a month for meetings, support the President Chris Else when and if necessary, keep the ship steady. Well, the 90s turned out to be a notably turbulent period for literary politics and for the good ship Penn. I found myself in the thick of it. There was the ruckus over the proposal to purchase a writer's flat in Bloomsbury, which ended only after a bitter stash between the Minister of the Arts and the senior novelist who helped him cook up the scheme. This duo fighting off a posse of outraged writers led by women who vigorously opposed not the idea of a writer's flat, but the undemocratic way it was handled. Why London? Why near the British Museum? Why so costly? Why weren't we consulted? They indignantly and rightly asked. It got very personal and ended with the flat being sold and writers generally regarded by the public as a disputatious and ungrateful lot. Then there was the lame change following rumblings that Penn was fast taking on the role and responsibilities of a literary trade union, working to improve the status, rights and incomes of the country's established mid-career and aspiring writers. Believing in the value of collective action, collective bargaining and not least collective support, I was right behind the proposed change to society of authors. Yes, an old guard predictably emerged holding fast to the notion of Penn being an elite body, putting most of its effort into supporting writers globally where freedoms of speech were under threat. 
I remember a particularly fractious exchange of views in this very building, and more again when it became known that one of the old guard had sought to preempt any name change by applying to register Society of Authors as an incorporated society with the required signatures garnered from his university colleagues. This bit of desperate skullduggery didn't work. The organisation became known as the New Zealand Society of Authors Pen Inc., at last being named and seen for what it truly was. But that was relatively minor compared to the tsunami that overcame the arts sector in 1994. The Literary Fund, administered by the Literature Committee of the QE2 Arts Council, didn't fit the new one-size-fits-all business model proposed by Victoria University's Professor of Public Policy, Claudia Scott, and the newly named Minister of Cultural Affairs. All arts became one, and literature had the most to lose. Creative New Zealand was born, with that marketing name described at the time as sounding something like a hairdresser in Tikawiti. <laughs> the neoliberal ideologies of the 1980s were allowed full sway, along with the new speak of goals and objectives, surely the same thing, and emphasis on accountability and contestability and new initiatives. Panels of anonymous peers and experts appointed by CNZ would now tick boxes to enable fair and impartial funding decisions, free of the possibilities of cronyism. Writers were told they were up against theatre companies, choirs, photographers and potters et al. And faced with filling out applications for funding under various programmes, arts access, arts awareness or development or international access and so on under the banner of strategic objectives. Writers each asked each other, how on earth do you draw up a budget to write a novel? As I remember those first two years, the Society of Authors was by far the most outspoken of all the arts bodies grappling with this upheaval, and its new president, Gordon McLaughlin, the most vehement and fearless public critic. He gave Claudia Scott, as chair of the New Arts Board, a hard time, and along with scathing put-downs of CNZ's corporate language, he especially hated the overuse in contexts both pompous and casual of that word excellence. In 1996, Gordon retired and it was obvious that the incoming president had big shoes to fill. It's frankly a thankless job, unpaid, and no matter how good your executive officer and national council, consumes more of your time, energy, headspace and stamina than you could ever want to imagine. It's made just a touch harder by knowing that some of the country's leading writers choose not to belong to their professional body. Why is a mystery to me. Even if you never go to meetings, the sub is modest, supports work of direct benefit to you and is tax deductible. Perhaps as free spirits, they just don't like belonging to things. Yet they happily belong to the Authors Fund, since 2008 known as the public lending right, and must appreciate the annual payouts that the society's officers lobby hard year after year to improve. Whatever, in 1996, with no other candidates in sight, I took over the presidency from Gordon. Probably I was seen by the older gentleman writers as a bit of lightweight female fluff. <laughs> I knew myself to be in a difficult space, 
still mourning the loss in 1992 of our second daughter, aged 24, and two years after that, my marriage. I was seeking solace with writer friends, writing and acting in our self-devised plays in schools and book festivals, even appearing in 11 episodes of Shorten Street as a smooth but not clever enough blackmailer. But immersing myself even more deeply in society's affairs wasn't just denial or diversion. Rather, I was unwittingly conforming to one of the known phenomena resulting from the death of an adult child, namely, the undertaking of some project or advocacy of some worthy cause, maybe a book to write, a grieving parents' group to lead, even a new career or course of study. I knew of this only because the Auckland bookseller, Carol Bow, recommended a new book by an American science writer, Anne K. Finkbeiner, titled After the Death of a Child, Living with Loss Through the Years. The author had lost her only son, aged 18, in a train accident. Hers was the only book I found that in focusing specifically on the deaths of adult children, gave me comfort. I now understood from her book that for all of the 30 parents interviewed, grief was limitless, guilt was normal, and you won't ever recover in the glib sense of getting over it. Time is not the great healer of popular cliché. Further, all of these parents were now doing things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. They undertook new missions in life with, quote, enormous force as if the child's trajectory was continued in the parent. Well, I can't comment on enormous force, but I do know that Claire inspired many people during her short life, not least me, and that I gave the presidency role my best shot for those three years, with most people unaware or having forgotten what had happened to my family in that dark winter of 1992. Gradually, as the millennium approached, Creative New Zealand systems were modified, suspicions faded, confidence and goodwill were restored, though the corporate language remained and, it has to be said, is now pretty much standard for even for charitable trusts, diligently drawing up strategic plans on spreadsheets to make their limited funds go further and fairer. Which, of course, was what Professor Scott and the Minister Doug Graham were trying to do all along but conspicuously failing to take the arts constituency with them. It was a masterclass in now how not to manage change. But then the upheavals of Rogernomics and Ruth Richardson were hardly good role models. In 1999, with the Society in Reasonable Shape, I handed over the presidency to another children's writer, William Taylor. He succeeded where I had not in persuading the incoming Labour government to give a much-needed boost to the Authors Fund, renamed in 2008 as the Public Lending Right. William's presidency and the next nine years of Helen Clark as Minister for the Arts were good times for writers and the arts generally. Having arrived at the new millennium, I want to go back to my brief. In 2022, the state of New Zealand's literary world. By and large, it's looking pretty good light years away from 1982 when I published my first novel, Night Race to Kawao. Forty years ago, there were no creative writing courses at universities and elsewhere, 
No annual book festivals around the country attended by thousands. Debut novelists didn't dream of international six-figure advances in Netflix. Self-publishing was practically unheard of. For children's writers, no proper book awards, few available grants. Not even very much children's, local children's publishing until around 1980, when Morris G., Gavin Bishop and myself signed up by the formidable Wendy Harricks at Oxford University Press, ignited an explosion in the early 80s that continues to this day. Most writers worked on clattering typewriters, a few still handwrote with fountain pens. Anything resembling a computer screen, a laptop or a cell phone that could play music and video link you to someone in Tuscany would have been dismissed by your average writer in 1982 as pure fantasy, the stuff of science fiction. Certainly the literary world as it stands in 2022 has benefited much from technology to become infinitely more exciting, supportive, diverse and challenging. But let's first get the negatives out of the way, in no particular order. Why has that serious quarterly journal known as New Zealand Books been allowed to die? Why is there no decent book program on the telly for years? Why are the major book awards not televised as are those for sport and pop music? Is it only because of the great God known as ratings or lack of political will or lack of people protest? I just cannot understand why mainstream print media with the honourable exception of the listener, devotes so little space to book reviews and news, only one or two pages at best and precious columns given to unnecessarily large images. Surely, many of the people who still buy newspapers are the same people who persist in buying books. The paucity of reviews in children's and young adult books throughout the print media, newspapers and magazines alike is especially remarkable and not in a good way. I'd even say it was a national disgrace and a dereliction of duty. How else are grannies, unlikely to be familiar with blogs and such like, supposed to know what books to buy for their moko, which are quality and which are rubbish? Bestseller lists and assistants in chain bookstores are not always reliable. The storylines list of notable books across five genres the most comprehensive and valuable record of what of true worth has been published in a year also struggles to get traction in the media. Ironically, the best reviews of New Zealand children's books, apart from Kete, about which I'll say more later, are in that lively Australian magazine's, uh, magazine, Magpies. The National Children's and YA Book Awards generally make only short-lived media waves, if at all, despite hard-working publicists. These same publicists also know that nowadays to impress editors and producers, it's helpful if their writer client can produce a handy backstory, a childhood or adolescent trauma like anorexia, depression, dyslexia, a rape, neglect, gender issues, racism. We live in an age of the confessional, manifested both in many books seeking publicity and in the lives of their authors. It's not a healthy trend, in my view. In schools, there is widespread concern about less money for school libraries, fewer specialist teacher librarians, fewer class sets, and ongoing lamentation 
that the iconic school journal, traditionally a training ground for writers and illustrators, is no more. Only recently we heard that two in five New Zealand children by the age of 15 are failing or only just meeting literacy standards. Connect the dots, people. We can't blame everything on two years of pandemic. Clearly, there's some PR work to do here for publicists and ordinary readers like us to speak up and persuade 30-something media editors and producers that the world of books and their creators is of compelling, enduring interest across the generations. Which brings me to the good news, to evidence compiled by organisations and individuals far better informed than me to show that publishing in this country is doing rather better than we might imagine. Despite our two years of pandemic, two major lockdowns and general anxiety about the future. The ever-reliable listener reported six months ago that general book buying in 2021 was up by 16%. During lockdowns, people bought books online. My local bookseller told me she could barely keep up with the demand. Locally published books were up by 14% by value, children's and YA 10%. What did specially well were graphic novels with sales doubling, books on sport up by 40%, politics by 30%, and mind, body and spirit books up a mind-boggling 70%. Historical non-fiction was thriving anticipating the government's welcome reintroduction of history teaching in schools next year. The top-selling title was Aroha, Hinemoa Elder's truly beautiful book of Māori proverbs, 10,000 copies sold and counting. Any resident or visitor returning to our shores after two years away will surely notice the welcome diversity of titles not only by talented Māori authors, but also Pacifica and Asian and also more by and about women, notably younger women. We're not alone here. In the UK, book sales in 2021 were the highest in a decade, worth close to £2 billion, with adult fiction rising 20%. That would have seemed impossible to contemplate back in 2009 with the arrival of the Kindle, predicting the slow and inevitable death of the printed book. Not so fast. Many of us still like the feel of paper, the slow turning of pages, and always will. For a professional snapshot of our reading habits, we can take comfort from the 2021 National Reading Survey, commissioned by Read New Zealand, Te Po Muramura, formerly the New Zealand Book Council. It concluded we're a nation of book readers, especially to our children at bedtime. Over 12 months, our, population, our adult population reads across the genres around 16 million books by New Zealand authors. Just take that in. About 20% of their total reading. The under 10s enjoyed nearly 5 million Kiwi books. But note, that was 35% of their total. Together, we read nearly 13 million Kiwi authored books of fiction, 9.3 million non-fiction, 3.5 million books of poetry. In total, that was about 25 million New Zealand books a year. About half of adult readers use Kindles, 
and other e-books, but say they buy and read printed books as well. Through its core business of advocacy and surveys like this, and especially the long-running Writers and Schools program, Read New Zealand is doing an important and wonderful job to ensure that we remain a nation of readers. There's good evidence from UK that writer visits inspire children to read above their age level, have greater enjoyment and confidence in their reading than children in schools not visited by writers. This same conviction in the value of school visits inspires the storylines trust, Te Whare Waituhi Tamariki. The school tours take teams of authors and illustrators out into the regions, reaching tens of thousands of students every year. The same trust's program of awards for unpublished manuscripts has produced a sizable body of new works, some award-winning, others marking the start of good careers. The Christchurch School of Young Writers provides teenagers with regular opportunities for publication. And thanks to the National Library, last year saw the long-awaited arrival of the Te Afiurito Reading Ambassador, currently that compelling speaker and writer Ben Brown, who travels the country promoting the value and many pleasures of reading. Actually, this good news momentum has been building for some time. With both Ministry of Education and impressive corporate support, Duffy Books and Homes continues to get thousands of books into the hands of disadvantaged children. After some rocky years, the Ockham Book Awards and the Children's and YA Awards have both settled into major celebrations of talent and achievement. Kim Hill and others on Radio New Zealand National and the listener book pages regularly provide author interviews and reviews, always reliable and well-considered. Book festivals have proliferated, particularly that extravaganza that is the Auckland Writers' Festival. The children and YA writers and illustrators get together for a national hui every two years, as do the romance writers. Creative writing courses have become popular, along with freelance assessors and editors who, for reasonable fees, will help prepare a manuscript for, for submission to publishers and short story competitions. Self-publishing has become respectable and in a few cases has led to careers with mainstream publishers. And at an exclusively adult level, there's the Academy of New Zealand Literature, launched in 2016 by Dr. Paula Morris with 130,000 funding from the University of Auckland. It aims to provide writers with a platform to promote their work, raise their profiles, and connect with residencies, festivals, academic networks, and other opportunities around the world. The hundred or so members are hand-picked, but I can't help noting that no writers for the young are yet included. Not even superb YA writers like Kate de Goldie, Mandy Hager, Bernard Beckett, Fleur Beale, Anna McKenzie, David Hill, Shiloh Kino and Fiti Heriaka, a lineup as literary as many on the Academy list. I should also mention the professional associations of publishers, self-publishers, the literary agents, booksellers, school librarians, the English and history teachers, the list goes on. Now, all these worthy agencies are working their hearts out with efficient staff and, in some cases, such as storylines, 
drawing on the services of suitably qualified volunteers. Occasionally, pleas are heard from within the sector that there could be more collaboration, partnerships formed for mutual benefit, since the agencies share a common purpose and are often chasing the same sources of funding, notably Creative New Zealand and charitable trusts, big and small. There are encouraging signs that the new coalition for books is filling that role. Last year it held five hui, bringing together all the major players in the writing, publishing, promotion and selling of books. Their key findings were mostly positive, reinforcing the 2021 reading survey quoted earlier. COVID has been good for local books. Children's book sales have performed most strongly. There are new small publishers, new bookstores opening up and the momentum in the notion of reading for pleasure. The coalition's own website, Kete, is winning universal acclaim as the go-to place for well-written book reviews of local publications across all the genres. Of course, there were areas in those who we run by the coalition of could do better, namely more effective promotion, more diversity. They said the literary sector could learn from the music sector's investment into understanding its audiences, how to reach out to communities not currently well served. The key issues most often raised were, in capital letters, finding new readers and promoting books to children. To my mind, that second issue could have read promoting books to children and young adults. There was only one passing mention in the report that a greater degree of focus on teenagers would be helpful to many. Now here's the thing. Back in 2008, giving the first Janet Frame lecture, Owen Marshall stated that across the literary sector, quote, writing for children and young people has had perhaps the most spectacular growth and success. Leading authors like Margaret Mahi and Joy Cowley and others are, and I quote, among our most successful writers artistically and financially. All indications since then point to local children's book sales holding up. Adult books across the genres are, by and large, doing fine. But what about the group in the middle? Mention writing for young adults, and you're likely to be met with negativity and pessimism. It's a small market, doesn't sell. Kids don't read these days. They're focused on their cell phones, social media of all stripes, video games, movies, sport, their friends, homework, and coping with serious COVID-19 disruptions to their school and social life. They've no time for books, the hours and the focus that reading requires. They don't see the point when stories can be delivered faster and more visually by so many other media. A high school librarian whose opinion I trust tells me that in a typical class, about half will come from intermediate schools as enthusiastic readers. With encouragement, they'll remain so. About 30% might respond to a teacher's enthusiasm for carefully chosen books, but probably not become readers as adults. The remaining 20% are not, and never will be, interested in a book. They might pass through the NCA system, barely opening a novel at all. 
You might be asking, just what is young adult fiction? Why do novelists choose to write for this age group? One of New Zealand's very best, Mandy Hager, has a good answer. Quote, I love writing from a young adult standpoint as it allows a fresh-eyed view of the world and the ability to challenge entrenched views as only a young person can. At the first ever young adult literature convention held in England some years ago, writers across the board agreed that the essential feature of YA, quote, is an adolescent protagonist who will face significant difficulties and crises and grow and develop to some degree. Is that not reason enough to appeal to teenage readers? It's not quite so simple. In his wonderful memoir of childhood and reading called The Child That Books Built, English writer Francis Spufford suggests that a preteen can go one of two ways. Jump from junior fiction straight to adult books, the Greek myths and classics by Jane Austen and Dickens, which I suppose in the absence of any books you, that could be YA as su called YA as such, is what I did, reading War and Peace at age 14. Or, according to Spufford, your preteen can jump to novels that use familiar means to talk about new things. In other words, YA. He singles out Cynthia Voigt and Margaret Mahi. Her, quote, terrific Bronte-esque supernatural thrillers like The Changeover and The Tricksters, doing family life, quote, with an elegant, witty realism that made you feel you were getting a leg up to being an altogether more noticing kind of person. Simultaneously, he goes on, she understood how inchoately sexy magic is, at a point in your life when real sex is still three wishes away and gleams with as much mixed fascination and alarm as if it really, truly were a spell. <laughs> but there's little consensus about who was actually reading YA when anecdotal evidence suggests that typical readers also include nine-year-olds, still at intermediate school, and middle-aged, mostly, women who, fed up with the opaque nature of much adult literary fiction, prefer the strong characters and straightforward narrative lines of a YA novel. So, are authors and publishers missing the mark entirely? Well, I have some evidence of what can be done to make YA reading cool, to foster new authors and to help young people transition from Harry Potter through to YA and on to adult reading. There's a great brick of a book called A Thousand and One, and here it is, children's books you must read before you grow up. It's 960 pages, probably weighs about two kilos, and it was edited by Julia Eccleshare, Britain's foremost expert on the genre. The careful analysis of the 272 novels selected as the best globally published for 12 plus readers proves very interesting. I sat down one night and did this. The list goes back to Robinson Crusoe in 1719. Five New Zealand books appear and I'm pleased to say that Alex is one. There are 93 novels by British authors, 49 by Americans. 
This you might expect. But wait, 36 from Australia. 36, more than double the number from any European country or Canada or South Africa. How has Australia produced so many world-class YA novelists and authors since a trickle became a flood starting around 1990 with Gary Crewe's Strange Objects? Well, this is both a story of how one woman altered and enriched Australia's literary landscape. It is also a cautionary tale. Agnes Neuenhausen was born in Tehran of Hungarian Jewish parents, arriving in Australia at the age of 10. With an English degree from Melbourne University, she worked as a high school teacher, becoming intrigued by what students were reading and how books were being presented in schools. She turned this interest into a second career. When I met her in 1992 at the first conference of the Australian Children's Book Council in Sydney, she had just become Victoria's first youth literature officer. It was near the start of some 25 years devotion to persuading young readers that the books written for them were exciting and rewarding in every way, particularly, but not exclusively, books by Australian authors. She was a one-woman promotional tour de force, understanding instinctively that her campaign required more than just marching into a school and telling students they should be reading books. Agnes operated tirelessly and simultaneously on every front. She ran the vibrant schools program of the Melbourne Writers' Festival, began the Centre for Youth Literature at the State Library, and masterminded the Reading Matters conferences. She befriended countless writers. I was only one. She was on first-name terms with all the publishers, agents, and good booksellers. She took teams of writers out to schools into rural areas, had theatre directors adapt books, my Alex was one, into plays for teenage audiences. As well as reviewing, she produced several books herself, good books for teenagers and the like, invaluable to teachers and librarians in the days before the internet. She and I edited a cross-Tasman collection of YA short stories. I'm not a team player, she once told me, hated committees, but worked miracles leading a small group of professionals. She loved drawing up festival programs to suit writers and audiences. God knows how she kept up with the reading that informed her decisions. Through the 1990s until her retirement in 2005, I enjoyed her professional support, appearing at three of her exuberant Reading Matters conferences and continued to value her friendship right up until her death in 2017. Tributes came from across literary, Australia's literary community, noting how she set a framework that changed the perception of young adult literature in Australia. It's no coincidence that Australia's YA authors feature so strongly in this tome of a thousand books you must read from the global publications. I mentioned a cautionary tale. From inquiries in Australia, I've learned that much of Agnes's framework, based at the State Library, has recently been dismantled, breaking many hearts. 
The Centre for Youth Literature has been retired. Even a watered-down teen programme has been discontinued. The usual reasons are cited. Lack of funding, schools and teachers are too busy for partnerships and visits. Reading matters, conferences are no more. So too are the Inky Awards, where teens themselves were the judges. Review space has markedly diminished. YA publishing has flattened out and authors are turning to junior fiction, deemed as more profitable. I'm told that in the digital age, Agnes's model wouldn't work. Teens are reading on social media. They want to read, they want to write their own stories, and they want to share them. Even as I write this, I can hear Agnes's voice saying, and she was always a pragmatist, yes, it's heartbreaking, but nothing lasts forever, and the world has changed. Now then, you over there in New Zealand, think what might be possible. Since you never had anything like a centre for youth literature, you're starting with a low bar. But she wouldn't waver from her belief, which I share, that it's crucial that our teens have books to read that reflect their own lives, their own concerns, and the unique culture of Aotearoa. If we want an adult reading audience in the future, somehow we must persuade a good many of our teens that exploring their world through books is time well spent, especially the books written for them by some of the best writers in the country, bar none. We could start with a conference next year, perhaps, with all interested parties, like the one they had in England. It would honour the authors and the publishers who invest their time and money, involve the English and history teachers, the librarians and the booksellers and the media editors. It would bring in young people to tell us what they want, how to adapt book reading to the digital age. If there's one thing that the past two years have taught us, it's the value of such gatherings. Not by Zoom, incredible technology though that is, but the buzz of a room full of enthusiastic people debating proposals, conjuring up solutions. On that note, I'm grateful to the Society of Authors for bringing us together on this occasion in this lovely old venue to share our passion for storytelling through books and how together we can make our dreams happen. Thank you all. Tenera tatu katoa. podcast was produced by me, Elizabeth Kirkby McLeod, with music performed by Justin Bird. To hear more episodes of NZSA Live or NZSA Oral History Podcast, subscribe to our podcast feed on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can catch it on our website, authors.org.nz.